Hi, everyone. Welcome to another PR Masters podcast, where you get to hear the stories and wisdom of our industry's most successful leaders and legends. I'm Art Stevens, your host and managing partner of the Stevens Group, and I'm pleased to report that today's guest is number 75. I bet you all didn't know we had so many masters in the PR industry, but we do. So thank you for joining us today, and I'm happy to present our guest, and I'm excited to talk to him because I've followed his career for a great many years, and he has certainly achieved the pinnacle of success and truly deserves to be called a PR master. And he is Patrick Ford. And Patrick, as most of you know, spent 28 years at Burson Marsteller, where he served as U.S. CEO, Asia Pacific Chair, Global Corporate Practice Chair, and U.S. Corporate Practice Chair. And Pat, before joining Bursa Marsteller, where he spent 28 years, he served as Vice President for External Affairs at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research, one of America's leading public policy think tanks in Washington, D.C., which followed a brief career as a journalist, including four years at the Jersey Journal in Jersey City, New Jersey. At the present time, Pat is a professional in residence at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications, and he teaches courses in corporate reputation, crisis communications, and corporate communication essentials. He has won so many awards and has been recognized by so many organizations in the public relations industry and elsewhere that it would take me a long time to name them all. But among the lifetime achievement awards that he has received are from organizations like the Institute for Public Relations. He's also won a lifetime mentoring award from Planck Centers, Milestones, the late Betsy Planck. Uh, and he's on the board of that. And also in recognition of Pat's longstanding passionate commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, PR Week and the PR Council presented him with their diversity distinction in PR award as 2016 Diversity Champion of the Year for the agency side of the profession. So with all that behind us and a truly public recognition of Pat's achievements over the years, Patrick Ford, on behalf of the PR Masters podcast listeners, I thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great, Art. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, you have given a great deal to the public relations industry, and I've always been one of your biggest fans. So let's begin our PR Masters interview, where folks can get to know a little bit more about you, and also some of your thinking on where public relations and communications, where they are today in this crazy mixed-up world we live in. So, Pat, the first question I'm going to ask you is one that I typically ask all of our PR Masters, and that is, how did you get into public relations? And I know that the answers often have been very surprising and unexpected. Well, in my case, it was, I would call myself initially an accidental tourist in public relations, uh, in that I was a newspaper reporter, as you mentioned, and I thought I'd be doing that for a long time. Uh, you didn't make much money at that. And so I, I did a lot of side hustles. I was, I worked three nights a week at a, as a on the rewrite desk at the Newark Star Ledger. I worked um, as a stringer for Reuters, uh, one of the North Jersey uh, stringer. Uh, and I wrote freelance writing for quite a few other uh, places, including uh, 
a firm in Washington that was to which the um, American Enterprise Institute outsourced its public relations function. And for them, I did a lot of freelance writing and they called me up one day in late 1979 and asked me what I'd be interested in moving to Washington, D.C. and joining their staff, working almost most mainly on the, um, the uh, American Enterprise Institute account. And initially, I didn't really, to tell you the truth, when I was in college, I, I, I kid around sometimes and say, Art, that if the words public and relations appeared together in a sentence, I didn't notice it. And I certainly didn't think of that as a career option for me. Um, at, at where I went, uh, at Rutgers, we didn't really have, we didn't have a, uh, we didn't have a journalism school. We didn't have a communication school. I more or less minored in journalism, um, through the English department, but my major was political science. So when this opportunity came up, it, it, was, it was really to me more of an opportunity to get more deeply involved in public policy and to move to Washington. And I really assumed that within a year or two or three at most, I'd be back in a newsroom in D.C. Uh, at one of the bureau, news bureaus. But I, I moved over to public relations and I liked it. And, I, and I, I've stayed with it ever since then. And, um, and eventually I moved in-house and, and created the initially public relations department and then oversaw a lot of the other external affairs at AEI. So altogether, first as a consultant and then as a staffer, I was at AEI for about nine years, basically through much of the 1980s. So, Pat, like so many of us, you sort of accidentally got into the public relations uh, profession. I think it's true of many of us who have been in in the field for for many, many years. Uh, It's interesting. So you're no exception to that. And by the way, as an aside, I happen to live in Rutgers country. I live in Somerset, New Jersey. And I'm forced, required to be a Rutgers football fan. So it is something I don't mind, <laughs> just, just for the record. Pat, you spent 28 years with Burson Marsteller, where you served, as I noted a moment ago, you served in a variety of senior level posts, including U.S. CEO. And then you went into academia. Tell us how this came about and what led you to make that move. Well, in a certain way, it's interesting because um, – that was also a bit of an accidental move. Uh, in other words, I didn't ever aspire to be in academia. I didn't think I was qualified to do that. I did go to graduate school a little bit, but I didn't finish the degree. So I just assumed that wasn't even an option for me. But a friend of mine got recruited to the University of Florida in 2017 to run the PR part of the College of Journalism and Communications. She was on the board of IPR with me, Marcia Dostasso. And she called me up out of the blue one day and said, I'm just calling to see if there's any chance you would consider taking a leave of absence from Burson for a year and come down here and teach. And I think she just caught me at the right moment where I was thinking about my role at Burson and my, and my role in the large agency setting, um, long term anyway. And that seemed, this seemed like an interesting way to step off the merry-go-round for a year dig into um, giving back to the students at this great university. And um, so I agreed to do that. And, and great. And Burson was very gracious. Uh, we worked out a, a one year leave of absence and, um, and that I then proceeded to do five consecutive one-off visiting faculty member contracts uh, until last summer when they convinced me to make it a more permanent um, role. And I, I, and I will tell you, Art, that um, I think for me and I think for a number of people in our field, 
um, who have become what Ron Culp has called pracademics, practitioner and academics combined. Uh, it's been an unexpected, unplanned, but perhaps in certain ways the most gratifying chapter in my career and maybe in my life, because getting immersed with this amazing generation that's coming up now uh, in the intensive way I have over the past uh, now six years, which is hard to believe, uh, has just been incredibly rewarding. I, I think I'm helping them with how to think about their career, to think about what's possible, to think about what it means to be a, a good professional and a um, and a strong character. Um, and um, and I also um, I hope I'm helping the university, which now I'm proud to say. Last month was selected as the number one PR education program in the country by PR Week, which we were very happy about. And um, so it's just been great. And and what I love about the University of Florida is I already knew they were very good. I knew quite a bit about their program before I came down here. But for my first conversations with them and and, and for each of the years I've been here, it's so evident that. It's already great, but they want to be more. They're already doing so much for these students, and they mm-hmm. want to do more. And over the years, when I think about what I was looking for in my team members at, at various places, and, and, and particularly um, for for the people I would most want to work with uh, in my years as a uh, at person and uh, and so on, it was usually people who who showed up when they needed to, who cared. Who um, who could, were ready to roll up their sleeves and get stuff done, and who basically recognize that the way you get things done and the way you really achieve success yourself is to be ready to lift others, and um, and that's what I like about the environment here at the University of Florida. So um, it's been wonderful, and uh, a number of people asked me, "Why don't you go ahead?" Because my main home is still up in the D.C. area, but. Um, but I like it here, and I like the program, and I love the people. For right now, I'm in it for the foreseeable future. Well, I was going to ask you if you needed to move to Florida, so but apparently you, you still have a place up in the D.C. area. But yeah, yeah, and, and, and my wife, who uh, my beloved wife, who has suffered through a lot of uh, uh, my travels and other things over the years, um, and she's very supportive of this. But for her, you know, uh, we have. We have neighbors and friends and family and, and, and there in Arlington, Virginia, that at this point she's already retired and she, she would just as soon be there. So, um, so I just have a little apartment down here and I'm, she's coming down next week and we're going to head back up north, uh, in a couple of weeks. So I know three people who have been identified or associated with the University of Florida. One is uh, Deanna Pelfrey. The other is, uh, Andy Hobson, right? right? And the third, of course, is was Kitty Kelly. Kitty Kelly, of course. Uh, and she unfortunately uh, passed away, but she was yeah. back when I got here. There were three incredible academic titans: uh, Kathy and um, and also um, Marianne Ferguson, who just retired after forty-one years uh, this month, uh, and um, and Linda Hahn, who um, you may know, who was a protege of um, yes, and she's uh, she retired last year. So, um, so yeah, they've got some great, and, and Juan Carlos Maeda, you may know, was here before. Oh, he yeah, sure, 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 yeah. He, he was really my, one of my first introductions to the University of Florida. Yeah. I've been on a number of boards with Juan Carlos. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So, Pat, how, 
How do you compare large agency life, which you obviously came out of for a number of years, with academia? Well, I think in certain ways, much different. Uh, certainly uh, in, in academia, um, there's just as much work, but without the pressure of and without the financial pressures that happen when you're running a, a big enterprise. Uh, and um, and uh, and certainly the way I do the academic side is I, I run my classes like business meetings. I really see my role as much more geared to getting students ready for professional life as opposed to the deep scholarly research that a number of these great uh, PhDs do. Uh, and um, and so in some ways it's very familiar, but in other ways, I guess I would say it, I'm, I'm focusing more on the retail than the wholesale. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm trying to affect one, one life at a time here um, in a meaningful way, uh, both in my classes and then also in the student organizations that I try to help. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and, but I would say that the, um, that the importance of staying attuned to the, to the overall profession is still very strong. And I try to do as much as I can to stay connected to, um, to the, the leaders in our field, uh, through the boards I'm on and through other activity. Do you plan your own curricula? Uh, and, and, uh, that's a follow up to that. Uh, do you teach several different classes or or like the same course for diff- different groups of students? So I no, I teach different ones. Uh, and I I do. I think maybe maybe some other some others of those pracademics have had a similar experience. So my introduction is a, a little different from what a, t- a typical new faculty member would do, because <clears throat> sometimes the new faculty members just need to teach those required courses that have to be done. Right. Yeah. In my case, they pretty much asked me, what do you want to teach? And um, and I, I'm teaching three courses now that I think um, seem to have a really profound impact on the students that take them. One is crisis communications, um, which so I'm in, in many ways in, in all three of them, I'm teaching what I did for many years. Uh, and um, and uh, the second is corporate reputation, somewhat related. In other words, to some extent, the, the why behind the, the, the crisis thing, right? Why, why is it so important to protect those corporate reputations? And how do you build a reputation and sustain it? And, or how do you ruin it if you, if you, if you don't go about it the right way? And then the third one um, was, um, was something I've been thinking about for a while and, and was, was advanced quite a bit by the great work of uh, Ron Culp and Matt Regis at, the, at DePaul University. Uh, the course is called, we call it here, Corporate Communication Essentials. But a better description would be the title of the most recent book the two of them wrote, which was called uh, Business Acumen for Strategic Communicators, a Primer. So this course is designed to teach our our mostly senior um, communication majors about why if they want to be taken seriously as 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 our profession becomes so much more important in the, in, in the, in the business world, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. It's because the, the role of business in society has changed dramatically. And we need to be part of that, uh, facilitating that change. And to do that, to be taken seriously inside those companies, you need to understand business. You need to understand, understand business generally, but also the business of your business and your client's business. Uh, and, um, and so, I um, I take these students that many of whom think that 
they don't, they're, ne- they're never going to like math or they're never going to like numbers. In fact, Art, I make them take a pledge at the beginning of the semester to swear that they're never in their life again going to say, I really don't like math and I'm not very good with numbers. <laughs> because I assure them there are computers and people that will do that math for you. <laughs> what you need to understand is you're, if you're going to be a storyteller for that company, which you need to be, you need to understand what those numbers are telling about that business and understand how that business, especially if it's a publicly held company, is required regulatory uh, requirements that they tell the story of their business once a quarter uh, and even more detail at the end of the year. That yes, involves numbers, but it involves so much more. And I think I'm happy to say they come out of it understanding that and yeah. actually knowing what a balance sheet is and how to read it and, yeah. and uh, other terms that are important. Yeah. Pat, I'm going to ask you a question that I hadn't thought about asking you, but, uh, you know, who is a better person to ask than you? What role and effect do you think artificial intelligence will play in the practice of public relations? I think a significant, it's already playing a significant effect, uh, right? So I think the importance of developing deeper relationships with your stakeholders for a company or, or for individual professionals has never been more important. And part of that involves really learning about the, those stakeholders, whether for a company that would be employees, customers, suppliers, shareholders, and the communities where you operate. Uh, and there's so much more, um, not only relevant data available now, but, but, uh, data that can be used to really deepen your understanding of what really matters to those stakeholders, how they perceive what your, what your, what role you're playing. Uh, is it, is it similar to what you think you're playing? And, um, and so we've always had that challenge, but I think, uh, what, what AI will is already and will enable us to do is to just be able to make that even more meaningful by uh, by having rapid access to a lot more uh, knowledge and understanding of those elements. Meanwhile, I think what the public relations profession will continue to need to do is to make sure that AI just doesn't take over the human aspects of corporations and individual relationships. And, um, and, and of course, I think, um, make sure that, you know, we all understand that for any computer process, there's a garbage in, garbage out factor. So if it's, if it's, if you're, if you're putting the wrong inputs in, um, you, you could make a big mistake in counting too much on the output. Um, but I, I, I prefer, I tend to be in general a glass half full kind of guy. <clears throat> so I, I tend to be, Hopeful that um, that our 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 work will become more more impactful, and our role in terms of preserving the human elements of corporate character and uh, and ethics and so on will become even more important. They're just going to be somewhat different. Um, we're not going to have to put quite as much um, work into some of the things we 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 have been putting a lot of work into. But that's already been a case, right, Art? I mean, there, there were, think back to when you and I were first in the business, you waited around for somebody to send you a batch of clippings. And, and uh, at the newspaper where I worked, there was what they call the library. If you wanted to see what ran at such and such a time, you hoped that it was filed in the right way and you went back there and hunted for it. 
Now it takes nanoseconds to pull up not only that, but a whole lot more and to be able to process all that you're pulling up in a much more rapid and meaningful way, because you're not just getting a big pile of data, you're getting it processed and sorted. So we've, we've already been moving in that direction. And I think um, we're just seeing now that there's some quantum leaps happening at that, which like anything, like any advancement has both risks and opportunities. Do you think any uh, safeguards or constraints need to be put on artificial intelligence? Do you think we need like some modicum of protection? I do think so. And I'm, I'm not expert enough to know exactly what that is. In fact, we've got a big division here, not only looking deep, deep dive into here at the university, looking deeply into AI writ large, but also here in the College of Journals of Communication, we've got a consortium on trust and, and, um, and, um, accuracy in media um, that's looking at how disinformation and other in many forms can be can be severely damaging. But I do think that um, uh, we're already seeing some of the leading tech experts themselves saying, be careful here about um, what what we're unleashing. Make sure we know what we're unleashing here. And um, I do think that um, that not only that that industry, but also Congress and others are are looking into what kind of regulations we should be uh, considering there. There are people out there who want to be in your shoes. Another Pat Ford. That's why people listen to our PR Masters uh, series for first for that reason primarily. And so my question to you is, Pat, tell us the secrets of your success and. How did you rise to a top-level position with Burson, and how did you manage to get to the top, and what did you have to go through? What advice, in other words, can you give to aspiring agency leaders who right now are listening to this podcast and have learned about you and want to achieve what you have achieved? Well, let me start in answering that question, Art, by just saying one thing, and I don't mean this as any form of um, false modesty. But I, I actually have not achieved the top of the profession. And that was by design for me. I never saw it. Uh, in fact, I turned down on two different occasions, uh, specifically, but on others with, with feelers. I've turned down numerous opportunities to become a CCO. Uh, in fact, my long-term mentor always told me he thought I should have been a CCO. Um, I, I just didn't trust myself to uh I just didn't feel I would I would be right for that top role, either the global CEO of an agency or the or a CCO at a major corporation, for a variety of reasons that apply to me. But in, in some ways I think that helped me because I think I've gone through a lot of my career without without representing much of a risk to other people. In other words, if I was asking somebody to do something or or um pushing them to do something or whatever, there weren't concerns about what my ulterior motives might be about positioning myself for this or that role. I would have been very happy to stay as a um, running a portfolio of accounts at person for, I, I did for a long time. I, I thought I was never going to take on a, a management role. Uh, and I resisted it for, for like the first 13 years I was at person because I thought I could do more in just managing a variety of really interesting accounts and working with and, and helping to elevate a broad group of people in that person network and among our clients. 
And I think when, when you approach things in that way and, and focus more on the work itself uh, and that rush that you get when you've really nailed an assignment and, and even the bigger rush that comes when you've nailed it with a diverse team, you know, diverse geographically, diverse culturally and, uh, and, and many other ways. Uh, and, and for me, it was always, I was always seeking that feeling and, um, and titles, I had the same title literally for 13 years of person. Uh, and, um, and I didn't, I didn't want anymore. But I think uh, at some point they asked me again, and I thought I've been telling all these guys for a long time what they should be doing. Let me give it a try myself. And, um, that's when I took on the uh, senior role at the, in the first in the U.S., then in Asia, and then globally on the, as a vice chair. And um, and I feel like my approach did work, which was focus on uh, be less obsessed about crunching numbers and um, and and um, looking at what this or that person is doing wrong, and focusing instead on um, getting people to feel like they want to be part of a winning team to be focusing on that mission. I've always felt I never was in the military myself, but my wife was. And my wife was, in fact, she rose to the level of, of, of lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And through her eyes and through her experiences, and especially she was a flight nurse. So especially having that overlay of medicine on top of military. there I don't know if there's any place where that sense of mission, of the importance of working together with your comrades on a, a common goal, where lives are on the line and, uh, and, the, and maybe the whole future of the, of the, the country that might be on the line. Uh, it, that's where it really focuses the mind and gets people to think about what really matters. And so, uh, so for us in our business, fortunately, most of the time lives aren't on the line or usually, or, and uh, the future of the world's not on the line usually. But if you, if you, if you're thinking in those terms, that notion of, of finding ways to help people work better together, to feel uh, great about working in a, in a winning team. Um, people want to be part of that winning team. There's a great professor at, uh, there was a great professor at Harvard Business School, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, wrote a book about 15 years ago called Confidence, in which she showed in many different ways how winning begets winning and losing begets losing, whether it's at your favorite football team at Rutgers or in a business setting, it's um, it, it people want to be part of a winning team and and all of the things that means. And so for me, that's always been the the fun and the and the joy of working at at, at an agency setting and now working in a university. I I'm looking to try and see what I can do to make as many lives better as I can. And in the process, I feel less stress. I feel more happiness and joy. And I feel much more fulfillment. Maybe, maybe don't make as much money as I could otherwise, but that's all right. I'm, I'm happy with that. But the moral, the moral of what you just described is that success is not necessarily becoming a CEO of a company or an agency. It, success is measured by the work you do as you describe it and the uh, degree of success you achieve in working with clients, working with a team and so on. So the title is not as important, I gather, from what you're saying. Exactly. Titles are always helpful they're, and they're important. I mean, they're, they, they mean something. Money is, the money is never not important. Uh, or money is always important, but it's not the only thing. And, and, and working at a big agency, I can tell you, um, virtually everybody there, we knew it. I knew it. Uh, certainly it applied to me. 
virtually everybody on my teams, I knew they could be making more money elsewhere. Sometimes I wondered why they weren't going and doing that. And part of it, in fact, part of it I ascribed to Harold Burson. He built this community where we all bought into Harold's values and his, and in fact, I loved when I worked, when I was based over in Hong Kong, our, our young, terrific team there in Hong Kong, they used to call themselves Harold's kids. And I love that. I love it because it meant a whole lot more than just that they were tied to a global firm because they were buying into this notion of, of our patriarch uh, and his values and how that applied to this global business and why we felt better. We, that network of Burson alumni around the world is remarkable um, in how they, they still stick together. And I attribute that to Harold. And to some extent in my, especially in the past 15 or 20 years of my life, I used to talk to Harold about this, that what I, what I aspired to do when he was asking me, do you want to be a CCO or do you want to do this? So what I want to do, Harold, is what you do. I want to walk the earth and do good things and reap the benefits of that. And to some extent, that's what I've tried to make my, my, uh, certainly these days, my mission. Well, that's a great tribute to a great man in the world of public relations, obviously, Pat. Oh, he was a great one. Um, Harold, Harold Burson. He was a wonderful mentor, a great friend, um, and um, and somebody that um, I always loved it, what uh, Don Wright, the professor at Boston University, was giving a talk once at a page meeting. And, uh, and he brought up Harold's name and he said, here's what I would say about Harold Burson. 30 years ago, Harold Burson put his arm around me and he never let go. And everybody in that room just was looking at each other and saying, that, that, that was that was my relationship with Harold, too. And um, and that's I think we can all can all benefit ourselves and be benefiting a lot of other people if we go through life thinking about who's going to be saying about about us in 30 years. What Don Wright, this titan of public relations research, is saying about Harold. And um, and so uh, I think in some small way, I was fortunate to uh, reap the benefit of that. He was the main reason I ended up at Burson Marsteller. I met him five years before I joined the firm by accident in, um, in Japan, as a matter of fact, uh, I was over there with a, with this think tank. And one of our, one of our panelists in the conferences we were doing was a great diplomat named, uh, Phil, Philip, uh, Habib, who had just finished a stint as, uh, President Reagan's envoy of the Middle East. And, but he was also had a big, great background in Asia. And he was on Harold's advisory committee for person. And, uh, when we were done with our think tank stuff, we were standing around in the hotel lobby and he pointed across the room at this little guy standing over there and he said, you know who that is? And I said, no. And he said, well, he's one of the smartest people in the world. He is in your business. So come on, I'm going to introduce yourself. <laughs> and Habib was one of the smartest people I'd ever met. And the idea that he was pointing to a PR guy and saying that was one of the smartest people in the world. I loved hearing that. And um, so I didn't, uh, I didn't, immediately develop a deep relationship with Harold. I, I, to my discredit, I didn't even follow up with him after that trip, but I started really digging into what he, who he was and what Burson Marsteller was. So a few years later, unconnected to Harold, somebody in Washington called me and asked me what I'd be willing to move over to Burson. They had me at hello. You know, it was, um, <laughs> I, I moved, I did what I, what I would not advise most people to do. I moved for no extra money. Uh, from AEI over to Burson, because number one, they were they wanted me to work on an account that he was going to be the senior advisor. So I knew I was going to get a lot of time with Yoda, 
and get to learn a lot more about public relations. And number two, I thought it would just be a way to think if I wanted to be on the PR agency side for a while, which I ended up staying for several decades. Yeah. Uh, and um, it was a great experience. And I've got a few more questions, and I, I thank you for your time and, and your insights. I guess this overriding question I have for you, have, you know, you're having been in the industry for as long as you have and contributing to it greatly. How do you feel that public relations has changed since you got into it? And what do you envision to be its future? I know we talked a little bit about, you know, artificial intelligence, but obviously there are many other factors in the, given the world we presently we live in. How do you think it's changed and what do you think its future is? I think it's changed immensely from when I first got in it um, and where a lot of the emphasis was on media relations and getting clips and, and, um, and, you know, and holding events that got media to show up uh, or, or as, as Harold himself put it at some point, we went from being asked um, uh, how to say what the company wanted to do um, to then being asked, you know, what should we say? And, and, um, and then finally moving to the question of what should we do? Uh, and that's where I think the Page Society has done a great job of documenting, documenting that, that change in the public relations um, function in, inside companies as the, as the role of businesses changed. So for many years, um, as you know, uh, for many years, people just thought that the main purpose of business was maximizing return to shareholders. And a lot of decisions were made on the basis of short-termism on how do we maximize this quarter's um, returns. And uh, I think, uh, and it's what I, what I talk about a lot in my corporate reputation, some of my other classes is um, is that evolution over the past 20 years or so, especially since the Great Recession, toward a much more broad-based role for uh, idea of the role of business, uh, that we're we're part of the conscience of the corporation and we're we're doing much more than just um, advancing media plans or whatever. And um, and so as that role of the CCO is, has evolved and the role of the communication function, I think um, it's been much better because we're, we are focused much more on that uh, the, the sense of purpose of why, why are we in business in the first place and our mission, you know, what, what, what are we doing to fulfill that mission? And then values. How do we? How are we operating on that basis? And um, so I think that's had a big effect on what we're doing now. Excuse me. And then, and as we move more into the future, I think the, the it's imperative that companies um, continue to build on the actual advancement that they've had over other institutions in terms of trust, as has been illustrated in the Edelman Trust Barometer and many other surveys. Yeah. Uh, that that show that business is really more reliable than than media, government, uh, or other institutions in most stakeholders' minds uh, for solving the most critical issues. But part of what we need to be able to do is um, is build that notion of genuine relationships where where a company is able to listen to and hear the, the concerns and aspirations and dreams of those all those stakeholders. And um, and so I. I, I tell my students all the time, I would love to be starting out in this business right now. I think the, the, the possibilities are endless. They're going to be different from what we went through, but that's part of the fun and it's part of the opportunity for them. Change creates opportunity. And I think that um, we've got a generation coming up that's going to be well positioned to meet that. 
Pat, I have one final question for you. And that is, where do you see Patrick Ford in the years ahead? Well, I'm not planning to retire. Um, I'm, uh, I'm not going to, I don't know that I'm going to work into my 90s the way Harold did. Um, uh, but I admire the way Harold Burson stayed very relevant into his late 90s, uh, even as his, his body was becoming weaker, his mind stayed very sharp. And he felt, he felt strongly that part of that, his ability to keep his mind sharp was that he stayed engaged and he, and he never stopped trying to learn. So I, I feel like one benefit of being in an environment like this is, um, is I'm, I'm constantly learning new things. I'm constantly, um, uh, trying to teach new things. Uh, and, um, so whether it's, uh, whether it's teaching in college or whatever, I don't know for how long, but my, my intention is to keep working and, um, and, uh, trying to fulfill that ambition to, um, to, make make help to make institutions and i hope people um be in a better place when i was done working with them than um than before that uh, and that's part of been been part of my goal all the way along and i think uh being in a, an educational institution in some way um is a good way to do that it, it certainly is and and some of my greatest heroes have done that. There's quite a few of us now that have moved away from agencies or corporations and into academic settings at, uh, at quite a few universities I'm sure you're aware of, um, including one you just had a few weeks ago, uh, Larry Parnell, mm-hmm. but uh, Gary Sheffer at Boston University, uh, uh, Tom Martin at College of Charleston, Fred Cook at the University of South- Southern California, Ron Culp at DePaul. And um, and little old Pat Ford here in University of Florida. Well, on that note, and obviously uh, a prelude to those of us who would like to at some point get into academia, you know, the prospect of teaching young people what the present and future will be in public relations is something that can be very appealing to those of us who have been in it for a long time. Patrick Ford. I recommend it. Pat, on behalf of PR Masters podcast listeners, I thank you so much for joining us today. As I said earlier, you have given a great deal to the public relations industry, and I have always been one of your biggest fans. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Art. I really appreciate it. And that's it for today, folks. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Faye Shapiro, publisher and editor-in-chief of Compro, for your support and sponsorship of these podcasts, which are now in their fourth year. This is Art Stevens, your host, signing off. So until next time, be well.